We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Everybody, Steve says for them coming at you with a special guest, David Rodriguez of the Fatima Center. You may have heard of both, you may have heard of one, you may you at least heard of Fatima Center. So, David, welcome. Thank you for coming in. And uh, how you doing? It's great to be here. It's an honor. Thanks for having me on the show. Been a big fan of Census Fidelium for many, many, many years. Um, you know, but uh, doing well. Thanks. It's good to be here. I brought David on because uh we both have a, I guess you say fanship or devotion, or, I mean, if you see over here, there's this rule of life, get, you see kind of his bottom over here. And then another one over here, where my thumb is, it's the mirror thing of Gabriel Garcia Moreno, which if you don't have this book by father birth, uh, drop everything you have and go get it tonight, or tomorrow, whenever, whenever you're listening to this. And uh, I would consider it. I, I pray before, pray to him before I go to communion. For a better communion. I know he's not a saint declared, but we'll talk a little bit about him. And hopefully you'll like him as much as David and I do, or maybe more. So David, why what they there's a few people on my list that I think uh will that I'm quite certain will one day be canonized, Steve. And uh he he's right up there with them. Uh, so oh, yeah, he's definitely the top ten list. Yeah, yeah, he's up there. So tell us a little bit about uh, Gabriel Garcia Moreno, please. I... Um, so, I mean, maybe just the very briefest of sketches, and then we can dive into more of the details. But he was the president of Ecuador in the 1800s, late 1800s. And in some ways, I think an epitaph for him has been the most Catholic president. Um, I, I do find it interesting. You know, we can talk about systems of government, too. That's actually one of the things that's really interests me about him. Uh, you know, the whole kind of church-state question that really has um, has been with the church since the beginning. I mean, since those days when Pilate is asking our Lord, you know, what is truth, right? Guidas veritas. Uh, so that church-state question is, has been there throughout the centuries, uh, but he did a pretty good job with it. And as a general rule, as far as I know, uh, only monarchs really, I mean, monarchs have been canonized. You know, you have queens and, and kings and emperors like Henry and uh, but when you come to like these democracies, we don't really have any leader of a democracy that has been canonized. Uh, you can correct me on that if I'm wrong, but I do think Gabriel Garcia Moreno is the, the most likely candidate to be the basically first leader, let's say of a democratically elected process of a modern Republic that will be canonized. So he's a, well, he's a great to, man. Just to back up even further, Our Lady Good Success prophesied him during a time when the word president or democracy was not, no one knew what that was, right? Exactly. Yeah, sure. I mean, um, he, he was prophesied. So that's always, you know, something to really raise our attention. When our Blessed Mother appears in the 1600s there in Ecuador and prophesies that 200 years later, 
uh, Ecuador will, to begin with, just be a republic. That that too was unknown at that time, since they were just monarchies, and uh, it was part Ecuador at that time was part of the Kingdom of Spain. Uh, so that was, you know, very interesting part of the prophecy. And then that you'd have this president, he'd be a Catholic president. He would be battling against the, the secret sex. I'm not sure if uh, if the word Freemasonic was ever used by Our Lady of Good Success. I'd have to go back and check the sources, but I think more more likely the term was the secret sex that were trying to undermine uh, religion, you know, trying to undermine God, and in effect trying to establish a new world order. Uh, so that is, let's say, the culmination of his life is in that great battle. Uh, he was elected several times to be president, uh, one time, and then he took a break, then he came back, and then he was elected a third time, but really before he's able to begin that third term, he was assassinated in public uh, by a Freemasonic plot. And so really in large measure because of that, I would even place him in the ranks of the martyrs. Uh, he really did martyr for Christ. And most likely the reason why he was assassinated, I mean, there was already a lot of opposition to him from many different fronts, as one might imagine, uh, because the 1800s is really, you could call it an age of revolution, uh, is when he consecrated his nation to the sacred heart of our Lord. I uh, got to go back and check on the date, 1871 or 1875. It's it's uh, right there. You can probably Google that and look it up real quick. But he does consecrate Ecuador to the sacred heart of our Lord. And our understanding is that it's after that that some Freemasons, especially I believe it was in Germany, uh, decided to start working on a plot that that this man needed to be assassinated. You know, th this could not go on, this sort of Catholicity. Uh, I mean, another one thing that I loved about him was when the Papal States were invaded, so this is 1870, right? Garibaldi and Vittorio Emanuele, they're, they're coming down, they're spreading the revolution throughout Italy and destroying the Papal States. That's what ends the First Vatican Council prematurely. Uh, no national leader decried that act, except for Gabriel Garcia Moreno. Uh, he did decry that act and said it was a grave violation of justice. And of course, Blessed Pius IX was very grateful for him for that. Um, but he's got a great life. I mean, the, the way he was raised, raised Catholic, but not always, let's say, into the faith. At one time, thought he might be a priest. Then he goes into the legal profession, travels abroad, sees firsthand what kind of wreckage the revolutions have brought there in, in Europe, goes back home. There's a bit of a civil war going on, big civil war in his country, and he supports it. He's a senator. He gets involved to try to really bring about a counter-revolution, to try to stem the tide of that growing revolution against God and uh, successful that, that they're successful militarily. And eventually that's kind of what leads up to his being elected. But when he was a president, I mean, it wasn't just that he promoted the Catholic faith greatly uh, and really insisted that this was the, the religion, the official religion of the country. Um, I think even, for example, in order to vote in the elections, you had to be Catholic, things of that sort. Um, but he does a lot to help the country. I mean, he did a lot to uh, improve agriculture, improve transportation, improve education. So he really lifted up the not just the spiritual lives of his people, which is obviously the most important, and collaborated well with the, the church. They also tried to assassinate the archbishop living at the time uh, by poisoning the chalice that the archbishop was going to be using for, for mass. Uh, but anyway, so you can see how you know extensive the plots were. Anyway... Um, he did a lot to improve both the physical, uh, natural, we should say, I should say, the natural lives of his people, but also the supernatural life of his people. And that really is, you know, the great, the, the signs, the great marks of, of a truly Catholic and, and great leader. So that's just a little brief introduction to him. Yeah, we need the old joke of who will build the roads. Well, this guy did. 
He brought in the yeah. Dominicans, the Redemptress, all the teaching orders to teach the, teach the kids. It was a great, uh, it goes after the libertarians a little bit when they say, you know, the, the market does everything. You can charge whatever you want for somebody. They had a, an earthquake in some city. I can't remember. It was before he was reelected as third. And somebody was cha- uh, was uh, charging water at extraordinary prices. And he goes down there and fl- has him publicly flogged in front of this, in the middle of the city. And nobody did that the rest of the time. It's it beautiful. But I was glad you brought up the Ecuador thing because this photo was pet was had he had that drawn in France. He goes over to France, and as you mentioned, he wasn't per- a great devout Catholic at the time. He uh, almost too working. He's, he's, someone bought him a, bu- a bag of a box of cigars. He said, "I don't, I don't have time to smoke anything. I just got to do this." But Saint Sulpice, I think, is how you pronounce it. And, he started going there, and then he learned about the French, uh, uh, the Sacred Heart devotion, and the the warning. What happened with the French Revolution? He did not want that happen in Ecuador, so he got that uh, painted by somebody out there, and brought it back to Ecuador, and then he consecrated Ecuador to the Sacred Heart. It's amazing how people see what happened with what happened with France. Goes, I don't want that happening here. Wish we kind of would do something like that. Yeah, no, and uh, also another part that people, many people, don't know about Ecuador. Gabriel Garcia Moreno had already died by then, um, but he did begin building a great cathedral there. It's Basilica of the Sacred Heart. And part of his legacy, which was finished about 20 years later, so in 1891, uh, the bishops of the country got together and actually consecrated Ecuador to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. So that's, you know, about 16, 20 years after Gabriel Garcia Moreno. And so Ecuador, you know, been consecrated both to the Sacred Heart and the Immaculate Heart, and there's certainly a lot of uh, a lot of miracles that have taken place there. It, it's a really amazing city uh, that God has graced. I, I do think there's some very special things God has planned for that small nation, you know, in His divine providence. Um, I've been privileged to to be there a number of times. I actually kind of started through another foundation that I work as the executive director of the St. Vincent Ferrer Foundation. We started taking tours down there, so I've been down there on tour, and I'm the I'm, I'm the tour guide, so I do all the logistics. You know, I get the hotels, organize the restaurants, the meals, the tours, uh, and then I actually lead the tours, um, take people into the various different uh, museums, cathedrals, churches, and, and we see a lot of stuff down there. Uh, so I've been down there a number of times and learned a lot about Ecuador and Quito in particular. Uh, fascinating place. It's it's kind of sad that I haven't been down there in several years. Obviously, once this whole Covidian madness hit, and a lot of national governments put us on lockdown. It's uh, it's been tough to travel, so definitely hard to organize a pilgrimage down there. But you know, in God's providence, we'll we'll hopefully make another pilgrimage there one day. We'll we'll see if that's uh that's part of uh, what He has planned for us. Let me know. I would one, I would love to go. Two, I'll definitely help publish it and promote it to get more people going to it. Uh, yeah, ever since I've you know dug into Garcia, it's just amazing. It's like I got to go down there one of these days, but. You brought up church and state. He and Pius IX were almost pen pals in the sense. He would ask Pius, what do I do in this situation? And vice versa sometimes. They had a real good relationship, right? They most certainly did, yes. Um, which is, again, really the best way for church and state to be operating. Um, I mean, that's the way it's kind of always been. And it's fascinating. Just this morning, I was talking to my daughter. She's taking a religion class. She's reading about the life of St. Athanasius. She gets in the Council of Nicaea. And so I just went into a little bit about how Constantine, who's at this time still a catechumenate, 
right? He's not baptized yet, but he has this problem that there's this issue in his empire. And so he called on you know, St. Hosius, Bishop of Cordova, Spain, as one of his counselors and asked him, you know, what should I do? And Hosius, you know, collaborates with Pope Sylvester and they're the ones who suggest that a council should be had. And so then Constantine has a council and he foots the bill so that any bishop that wants to come out to Constantinople, right, he'll pay for their travel, he'll pay for their, their, their food, their lodging, all that sort of thing. And so that's how the council, the very first great ecumenical council that Church had took place, it was this wonderful collaboration between church and state where we could sort of say the idea was there in the mind of the bishop, a holy bishop who was a confessor for the faith and a holy pope, a saint, and that they still needed the sort of collaboration of the state to make that happen. And that's when things work well. And so this collaboration that Garcia Moreno has with Pius IX, you know, it's, it's, modeled, it's modeled on that. That's how things should work. Um, so each one, obviously, church and state have their own particular spheres, their own particular sort of area of influence. Uh, but because the human being is a body-soul composite and you can't separate the two, you separate the body and the soul, that's death, right? That's when we die. Uh, similarly, for society, you could say that the church acts as the soul and the body is the state. You can't separate those two. They got to work together, each with its own sphere. And, and when you do separate them, well, that's death. That's death for the society. It might be a slow decline, but it's an inevitable decline until there's some kind of restoration. So Gabriel Garcia Moreno is certainly very instrumental in that Catholic restoration, which we all know is going to take place. You know, it's wrapped up in the message of Our Lady of Fatima, where there will be this reign of her immaculate heart. Uh, there will be a time of world peace, the kind, the likes of which we've never seen before and, and we can't even sort of fathom. So um, he's, he's instrumental for that. He's kind of like a type for that. And speaking of that peace, which Cornelius the family, which goes back to France and with Garcia, when he consecrates Ecuador, he ends the death. He brings peace to the, ends their wars. He brings peace to the people and the faith is blossoming in Ecuador. You tell, as you mentioned, the, uh, we mentioned Pius IX. He, I think he called him a great martyr for the church. And Leo XIII, as you brought up in the opening, said he was an epitome of Catholic government. Right. Yeah, Don, if you want to read more about, you know, how Catholic or how government should be run, you know, that's Leo XIII's encyclical, L'Immortale Dei, for example. Um, you know, that's a good one to read. Um, but uh, just one sign, I mean, it's great when you go there because one of the things you find out is as you're going to some of these churches, you find relics in the altars, right? And there's this one, and I'm now I'm, you know, it's been a few years since I've been down. Unfortunately, I have to go back and look at my notes, but there is a martyr. There's a Roman martyr there, you know, like from the first couple of centuries. <laughs> and one of these uh, altars, it's a big relic too. It's not like, you know, a small little bone or something. I mean, it's big. It, it might be the whole body. And, um, and so we asked about the origins of that. And it's precisely something that Pius IX sent to Gabriel Garcia Moreno, you know, sort of emphasizing that friendship that they had uh, in Thanksgiving because Gabriel Garcia Moreno had supported the papal states and had said, you know, this is wrong, that you can't take the Pope's land away. So after Gabriel Garcia Moreno had taken that public stance on the world stage, which, which no one else was willing to do. I mean, even at that time, you know, St. Anthony Mary Claret was over in Spain trying to counsel the queen and he was trying to get her to do um, good things as well. A Catholic queen, she had some bad advisors and she winds up banishing St. Anthony Mary Claret from Spain. So even she wouldn't stand up for the Pope uh, as Spain had and other Catholic countries had in times past, you know, over the centuries as the Pope was attacked. So when you go down there, you'll even see some, some ancient relics from the Roman martyrs which were given on account of that fidelity of Gabriel Garcia Moreno. Yeah, fascinating.
That's amazing. Yeah, like I said, I've seen photos when I think it was your trips. I know Father Sean's gone down there a couple of times. I think maybe with you. And he sent the he's emailed out the photos and just think the catholicity down there is off the charts. I mean, it's terrible when you look back and see now it's just museums, but that was like the, the Dominican convents and things like that. And, yeah, and you know, people still have the faith. I mean, one of my greatest memories, one of my strongest memories when you mentioned the Catholicity, I mean, it's it's still in their blood, which is good. You know, that, that's one of the reasons why there's going to be, the restoration will take place there. Um, we often go for February 2nd, because that's the great feast of Our Lady of Buenso there, purification, feast of the purification, presentation of our Lord, you know, fourth joyful mystery. And uh, so we're there on, a, on February 3rd also, which Catholics will right away know is the feast of St. Blaise when we get our throats blessed, right, from one of the 14 holy helpers was a bishop. And so I remember we're, we're actually in a small town on the outskirts of Quito. It's called San Antonio de Ibarra. It's famous for its craftsmanship. You want to get statues made, you go down there and there's some just world-class uh, workmen who have had it in generations and they'll make custom tailored statues for you, things like that. So we will go there. And so it's a small town, you know, it's out in the, in the country. But I remember that, uh, so the priest there is with us and because it's the third, someone in the group asked him to bless our throats. And he had his ritual with him, right? So all we needed were a couple of candles. Someone ran to a store, got some candles. We had about, I don't know, let's just say 15 pilgrims. So we're in the main courtyard plaza and the 15 pilgrims just lined up there. There's a park, like a lot of these, uh, you know, sort of old colonial cities are. There's a park there and the church is nearby, but like 15 people just line up and father just started blessing them, right? With the throats and it's a pretty quick blessing. By the time he gets to the line at the end of these 15, there were like 30 people lining up and the line just kept growing. It's like somebody saw it and the word got out and yeah. started spreading through the neighborhood and everybody's like rushing out of their houses and they're just coming and they're hitting the, the deck on their knees, right? They're hitting the pavement, they're getting on their knees and they're lining up. They're like, hey, there's a priest here in a cassock and he's blessing, gotta come out and get our blessing. And I thought, you know, to me, it was, um, it was so inspirational. It was really strengthening my faith because I thought to myself, yeah, I don't think that would ever happen in the city in the United States. You know, people would look at you weird. Uh, you might get some, some, some calls, some, some things said your way. Uh, some people might show respect maybe, but, but just having like this huge line just suddenly grow and the speed at which it happened. You know, it gives you an insight into the culture that's still there, right? They certainly are religious, they're pious, the way they communicate with each other and nothing's happening that, you know, you, they're not seeing, they're, they got their eyes open. So that was... <laughs> That's interesting you said that. I remember Father Romanowski mentioned that. He said he walked out of a place one time in uh, Guadalajara and saw the kids uh, stealing the mirrors off the cars. He's like, what What are you doing? That's, that still is a sin. He goes, I don't know why I said that because they could have killed me, but they looked at each other and they respected the collar and they handed me the, the mirrors. Where there's a, there was a story in L.A. of uh, one of those little rock band churches. And the guy, the minister gets up and tears a piece, tears a Guadalupe, Guadalupe photo in front of the group. And it's mostly Hispanic people. And they bull rush the stage. They said he almost, he got out by the skin of his teeth. So it goes back to what you're saying. It's still in them. Yeah. They just need to be, they need the authenticity. I guess they need the real stuff back. It's, yeah, we need, and they need some good leaders. You know, that that's a yeah. big thing. You, you need some good leaders. I mean, if we talk in terms of like the Latin mass and the restoration recovery of tradition, uh, I think certainly stronger in the United States and France, thanks be to God, um, woefully, woefully inadequate down in Latin America. Even just, you know, I know a lot of people that speak Spanish, and so they they want to get material, for example, and it's hard. It's not even easy to find resources and material to sort of help recover and, and restore the faith. Um, you know, they got some things, Catechism of Trent, got that in Spanish, other stuff, but it's not easy. 
So it was That's a lot of work. A Spanish YouTube channel and a Spanish tab in the dot uh, com site just for that. Because I did see the Muslims are trying to pull our boys out. Nah. Yeah. It was a fight. It was a vice video, and they were just showcasing how the Muslims in Houston were pulling all these Spanish speaking men out. Uh, unfortunately, and then I found another priest told me, "Yeah, there's a bunch of mosques along the border of Texas and Mexico." But, but yeah, he said leaders. We get the leaders we deserve. We need leaders to to become like a Garcia. And he was liberty for liberty for everyone except evil and evil doers. Imagine that being the motto of somebody running. That is a great motto. Yep. And uh, I noticed earlier you had thrown one of the pictures up there, the site where he's actually assassinated. Um, they have put up a plaque there and it says Dios no muere. And so that is, I mean, I can translate real quick. It says here fell assassinated the president of Ecuador, uh, Gabriel Garcia Moreno on the 6th of August, right? So that's the Feast of Transfiguration in 1875 and above by the cross where it says Dios no muere, God does not die. And so even as they're killing him, he's basically saying, look, you can't kill God. You, know, you can kill me, do whatever you'd like to me, but, but God cannot die. And so... Um, and that yeah. goes back to his, his routine, because that's why they killed him afterwards. They knew his daily routine, which was going to Mass, doing his meditation, and they're praying before he got the work done. That's right. So nearby, you can still see his house, and it's uh, adjacent to the plaza where the great Dominican church is, St. Dominic's. And so he would go there for daily mass. And uh, there's even an altar there in that church, the Church of St. Dominic, where it has a plaque saying this is where Gabriel Garcia Moreno received Holy Communion for the last time there on August 6th. So he, he goes to mass, he receives Holy Communion, does his prayers, as you said, and then he walks over. It's a short walk. I mean, we walk it every day when we're there multiple times. And he just walked over to the gubernatorial palace and it's on those steps where he is assassinated. Uh, you know, they, they club him, they shoot him. So it's pretty brutal. And even that doesn't kill him. Some of the people have enough time. Of course, the assassins run, cowards that they are. And the people are able to take Gabriel Garcia Moreno, still breathing, not quite dead yet, into the cathedral. And so, again, the main plaza there in Quito has on one side is where the Governorial palace, the presidential palace is, and then on another side is where the cathedral is, the cathedral of Quito, and actually, often another little corner is the convent of the Conceptionist nuns, where the miraculous statue is. Uh, so, but you know, they could they could take his body. He took him into the cathedral, and there, next to one of the side altars, is where actually breathes his last, and the priest comes. But he, of course. Um, as one might expect from a saint, forgives his enemies, uh, and the, the priest is there to you know, give him, you know, general confession, the last rites, and and then he, he dies. So you can also see that spot in the cathedral where uh, his his blood fell, and and they still have that there um, as a relic, obviously, and then um, and the, the place where he dies. So you can kind of follow his, you could call it his Via Dolorosa, his uh, his own sort of Calvary. From, from his house straight to where he hears mass and receives Holy Communion over to the spot where he then is assassinated or attacked and, and brutally, you know, killed, you know, jumped. Yeah, yeah. And then back into the cathedral where he, where he actually dies. Um, so pretty, 
pretty pretty good path to follow. Um, if you're if you're fortunate enough, you can go down into the crypt of the cathedral. You have to get some special people to open that up for you, but not not too hard if you can find the sacristan and, and arrange it with him, uh, which we've gotten to do several times. And then they take you down into the crypt where he's actually buried now. And so you can go to that site too and, and pray there as well. Um, and there's a whole story even about that. Um, when he dies, I mean, you can see how, how brutally he was uh, maimed. Uh, his friends were very concerned that the Freemasons would try to commit some kind of atrocity, some kind of you know sacrilege against the body. Um, you know, they know that they don't want people to see this. He was very beloved in his country, obviously. And so friends of his actually had to hide his body. So they took his body and they buried it and they hid it. And it, it, there's, a, there's a long story. The point of it all is it's very interesting because the body gets lost. Like no one actually knows where the body is after it gets buried because of the revolutions that are coming and the people with the knowledge, you know, things happen to them. Uh, and it wasn't really until not that long ago, you know, in the last couple decades, that they started doing a serious investigation and excavation, given some clues that finally came back to light. And they were able to open up one of the churches. And it was, I'm pretty sure, pretty sure it's the, the, the church of the Santa Catalina, uh, which is the, the um, female Dominicans. And uh, they, they discovered his body there. And so they were able to uncover it and find some of uh, his, his things were still there, like the sword that he had for part of his military outfit. It was buried there. And so in the Museum of Santa Catalina, they'll have some of those artifacts of him. And you can see those as well. Uh, but you can see just how serious the persecution was by the Freemasons of the country that, you know, even the body was not going to be respected. Again, reminds me very much, I, I'm not sure how familiar our listeners are with the death of Pius IX, but when Pius IX dies, I mean, again, it's, it's tough times in Rome and the revolution's fierce and they were afraid to even take his body out because they thought it would be attacked. You know, this is obviously the time when the Pope became a prisoner in the Vatican, right? Leo XIII, Pius X, the prisoners in the Vatican that can't leave. Um, so when they took Pius IX's body out of the Vatican, what they actually did is actually did a whole fake out. They did a whole procession to fake people out and they took it in one direction and, and it got attacked, but it actually wasn't Pius IX's body and they were taking Pius IX's body out in, in another, another way. So, you know, I think that, that we're not accustomed to hearing that, you know, that's how virulent the, the attack was, the devil's attack through his minions upon these great Catholic individuals, great Catholic president, great Catholic pope, won't even let them rest after they've been killed. Uh, pretty even terrible. that photo, they hid it and they put it in mothballs because Father Matteo found it. I don't know if you heard about it. You probably know that story. If, if anybody doesn't know that, he's the missionary to Sacred Heart Enthronement. They found He found that in mothballs and they told him, yeah, we hid it because we were afraid the Freemasons were going to come and destroy it because, they were, as you said, trying to get rid of everything about Moreno. And then he used that as the banner to promote the Sacred Heart globally. So right. I always joke saying everything's connected. I mean, almost everything it really is. It is. And then again, I mean, one of the great lessons learned from all of that, I mean, we see it so many times in our faith, but it's like, no matter what the bad guys do, it doesn't matter what the devil is doing, the, how, however terrible the atrocity is, God's still so powerful that he overcomes it. And, and God brings this great good out of it. And so, you know, I take heart in your own life. Some tough things may be happening, terrible things will be happening, but when we persevere and we have faith in God, uh, he brings great good out of it. We just don't see it a lot of times, which is why faith is so necessary. But God is good, 
and uh, he'll always bring greater good out of that evil. Yep. Amen to that. Yes. Yeah. The joy. Three tears for joy. That was the the cry of the uh, Vietnamese bishop of uh, Theophane uh, Bernard, who's all his priests were getting slaughtered, and he's saying three cheers for joy. Like you look at that today, what? They're getting killed. Yep, we're happy about it. That's right. Carmelite sisters going up the guillotine scaffold, singing right the Te Deum and things like that. Right, mother, may I have permission to die? This is how the French Revolution ends. It's it's glorious. It's great to be Catholic. Oh yeah, I would. I just thought. I wonder if that was a, if the the uh, president of Vietnam or uh, wherever they call him out there. If the one that got uh, killed during JFK's time, I wonder if that was a fruit from Theophane and the bishop and all that back then, because he was apparently a really good Catholic, and we ended up, and vice versa, you kill two Catholics, and not that JFK was a great, he's pretty much like a, would you say, like an anti-Moreno in a sense? I mean, he gives that speech, I will not listen to the Pope, I will listen to here, whereas Moreno, I'm listening to the Pope. I mean, if he had a cell phone, he'd be on his call all the time. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. You could definitely say that uh, in his policies and in his practice and really even in his life, his personal morals life, uh, JFK is kind of an anti, anti Moreno for sure. Yep. You mentioned at the beginning, of, or I can't remember, we were off camera talking about different forms of government too. Do you educate some of the people about that? Because, you know, Thomas talks about that. He's even got a little short book on, uh, was it governments of the church, obviously. And, uh, democracy is not the top one. No, of course. And I mean, I'll, I mean, I'll just throw a little plug if people are up for going and watching it. It's a good conference. It's a little long. It's probably about an hour. But a few weeks ago, Father Rodriguez, Michael Rodriguez, my brother, got together with a group of men down in uh, Louisiana, a men's group, and they asked him to talk about the heresy of Americanism. Uh, and so he did that. It's actually up at the Fatima Center's website right now, that conference. You can learn a little bit more about that heresy. Um, but he gets into that. He gets into that quite a bit, uh, just the problems with these types of government. So I would say that, I mean, the biggest, I think, error is that we all have to recognize as Catholics, and, and I would say this is even really part of the natural law, all authority comes from God. Right, we have to recognize that. So leaders may be elected in various different ways, legitimate ways, but regardless of who the leader is and how he got there, whether it be hereditary, by birth, by election, you know, by representatives picking him, whatever it is, he is given that authority by God. And therefore, he is answerable to God for how he exercises that authority. And that's true of every authority, whether you're the pope or a bishop, whether you're a king or a president. Whether you're a dad in the house, um, your authority that you have over the people under you is given to you by God, and therefore you have to answer to God for it. And the error that is, is so pernicious in our country is to think that somehow you need the consent of the governed, that, that we the people are the ones who hold the authority over ourselves. It's kind of like, look, I'm my own authority and I govern myself, and if I want to, for whatever reason, for convenience, for economics, for stability, for whatever reason, if I want to sort of relinquish some of my authority to an elected representative or to someone else, well, then I'll go ahead and do it, you know, and I'll vote. And that's how I'll elect someone. But ultimately, it's still I who have the authority. And, you know, we're a group. And when we come up with democracy, the majority of us will go with what the majority decides and we get to elect them. But, but, we're, but ultimately, the authority resides in us. And that comes down to me, the individual, or me, the group. 
Uh, and that, that's, that, that's the flat out error. That, that is not Catholic. That is not true. That is false. The error is that saying, I mean, you're placing yourself in the, in the role of God. So we have to recognize, no, 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 the authority resides in God. And it comes down to whoever God is assigning it to. You know, if, if we elect him, okay, we elect him, but God still invests him with the authority. And therefore he ultimately is answerable to God. In other words, he's got to follow God's law. He's got to follow God's moral law. He's got to follow uh, the state is obligated, for example, to seek out the truth, to find the one true religion and to ascribe to it for the good of its own people. Uh, it has an obligation to thank God for all the blessings. Any country's got many, many blessings. You know, Father went into this more in length in that talk. But, you know, every country's got blessings and, uh, you know, natural blessings might be oil reserves even if you're not using them or even if you're shutting things down getting rid of them, <laughs> rid of them you, you still got you know even if you got beef and cattle but you're forcing people to eat you know i don't know bugs and you know non non-meat products etc cetera, etc cetera. You, you still got these resources you got to be thankful to to god so that's i think the biggest issue that we have to recognize and then the other one which i already mentioned is just that the church and the state do have to cooperate together for the good of its people uh, the state is more concerned with the good of its people at the natural level. The church is obviously more concerned for the good of its people at the supernatural level, which can't separate those two. Uh, you know, obviously, it's, it's going to be easier to, you know, have a, have a flourishing supernatural life when your natural life is, is going well and vice versa. So the two go hand in hand and they have to work together for that. Um, and as I said, there is one true religion. And just like every individual is under an obligation to search out that one true religion and then to submit to it according to God's will, uh, the state must also. Uh, and then I would say, if we get into systems of government, well, here on earth, we really are supposed to be preparing ourselves for heaven. We're, we're practicing for heaven here on earth. And so we are meant to mimic, to imitate heaven as much as possible here on earth. And so obviously heaven, <laughs> it's not a democracy. Uh, heaven is very much a monarchy, uh, an absolute monarchy, an absolute benevolent monarchy. It is Are you a telling me St. Bernard isn't casting votes up in heaven? Yeah, no, no, he sure isn't. Um, but that's because everything's perfect in heaven, right? And everyone's uh, completely you know, in love with God. So uh, if we mirror that here on earth, then we are preparing ourselves more for what heaven is like. You know, we're getting ourselves ready for heaven. So it's a better preparation. And, uh, you know, on a practical level, I would say what we find, in my opinion, is that you know, everybody always says, yeah, well, you can have a bad king. It's true. You can have a bad king, but you can also have a holy king. And you can flip those around relatively quickly, as we've seen numerous times in histories. You know, you can see that in various emperors in the Roman Empire. You can see it in various kings that the different Catholic countries have had, France, Germany. Um, so you can flip it. And you can have a very good king, you can have a very holy king. I would argue that when it comes to a democratic system, the first thing is you don't flip it very easily and you never actually get excellence. Uh, with a king, you do have the possibility for excellence and, and great leadership and great governorship. Uh, that's just not really possible in democracy because there's so many people that it really just becomes satisfying the will of the people. And that's always going to be pulling you down towards sort of a lowest common denominator. You know, the people are, ans the, if the leaders consider themselves answerable to the people, they want to please the people. And we all know how our passions run amok. And so if you have a mob or a great majority, they're never all going to be striving for excellence. So with a democratic system, I would argue it really becomes impossible 
to ever sort of have excellence and great virtue in your government system. It, it may not generally reach a really, really bad point of the, the really bad monarch who's like a tyrant, but it can never reach the zenith of a holy monarch. And as we've seen right now today, I mean, that thing's actually, it's down. I mean, because we basically have these sort of tyrannical monarchs anyway. They have more power. Than more there's elected, mon elected monarchs here, and we got it. And you just, but yeah, I mean, you can look at Garcia Moreno. I mean, he was, compare that to uh, rep anybody running for office today. I think his first one, he wanted to do it just because he could. He knew how to fix Ecuador, and he did it. And he was with the church. I know the third one, that definitely, he did not want to run again, but the people wanted him to run again. Uh, now, how, do, how many presidents here? I really wanted that guy. No, we made an amendment to keep that. If anybody from doing that again, FDR. Uh, but yeah, even at the governor level, you don't see too many people, the gubernatorial level, you don't see too many people going, you know, I wish this guy would become king. Me personally, I'm a, everyone and her brother knows I'm a sessionist in the fan, breaking it down locally. And then, like Ecuador, the, they called it a country, by the way. If you read this book, they called it the country. The, the state of Ecuador and the state of France. That's the country of Ecuador. So we can have that here and you can make it not a monarchy. Maybe you can at least get people of virtue. I argue we need people like, you know, Catholic, real hardcore, God-fearing men that are Catholics running for these seats. Won't save it all, but as one guy says, you need to break it up and then convert it. Sure do. And uh, I mean, in many ways, that's uh, that's a similar plan that was employed by, you know, the Freemasons and that has been done to undermine, you know, the Catholic world and really the, the glory of Western civilization. It's, it's the whole divide and conquer. Um, and so if you want to run a counter-revolution, uh, some of those tactics still have to be employed. And I mean, you're, you're talking here the principle, the Catholic principle of subsidiarity, which obviously I'm a huge fan of. You know, you've got to go down to that lowest common denominator because those are the people that really know, those are the people that really care and that will actually put in the right policies and they won't be motivated, you know, just by greed and not caring about like constituents. So you do need those smaller pieces. I mean, we all know that our federal government is completely, completely run amok. I mean, talk about, uh, you know, gone drunk with power. Uh, the long train of abuses in the declaration, which is a secessionist document, by the way, is a little bit longer today than it was then. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but you know, let me read you the, this little piece. You brought up some scenario. You were in my head because I was thinking that there are two people that people. There's two people that had different opinions on this. One, everyone knows Thomas Hobbes, and he was a big centralized, top-down government runs everything. Here's a guy that he goes. Uh, let's begin with someone less likely to be known, Johannes Althusius, a, theor a theorist of the Dutch Federation. He wrote in an early 17th century work called Polit Politica. As, uh, as I will describe in this, that according to him, society is not composed of a bunch of scattered, isolated, autonomized individuals. It is not an undifferentiated, undifferentiated blob. Rather than conceiving of society as a flat plane, we might think of it instead of as a series of levels. It is a series of little societies whose symbiotic relation gives us our society at large. We begin with the household. For enthusiasts, the household is the fundamental political unit. With the household, you create a village, group of villages, in turn, can create a province, and so on. Whereas it seems like everything else is, we get ruled by the 10-mile square, and we take those dictates, and we can't do a darn thing about it. 
Yep, that's the mess we're in right now in this country and in a lot of different parts of the world. Yep. And I have the I heard the, the argument is that started after the French Revolution, and I wonder if Garcia thought that too that you see these big centralized units coming out instead of these localized ones, and like any he get back he gets back down and he's taking off the right people he's kicking out the Protestants, the Freemasons are trying to kill him every other day or coming up with a plan or trying to figure out something on this, and when you bring peace, the the, the evil guy is not going to leave he brings as they say clean out the house he might if you don't pay attention he's come back with seven more demons oh yeah no he definitely made that connection um while as you mentioned yourself i said he was in europe but you were more specific he is in france he's in paris and so he gets to see firsthand sort of the fruits of the revolution um even the revolutions of 1848 that you know hit just about every european capital uh but certainly by then francis had some time for the french revolution to really simmer and to start getting, you know, exported to every other country across Europe, first by Napoleon's armies, but then, you know, by all the other uh, false thinkers. And he expressly says, I, I don't want this happen in my beloved homeland. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the reasons why he goes back with sort of a renewed vigor and a plan. And he's real intentional about it, right? He's got a plan as to what has to be done so as to prevent Ecuador from going down the same path that, as you said, France went down um and and he does a great job with it until they kill him but you know he'll get a lot of merit he's getting married and he's interceding up in heaven god willing so uh, i'm convinced of it that he's up there right well i think leo the 13th or was it Pius night one of the two said he was a martyr for the church and that's pretty that's not a flippant response when you get the pontiff saying that i mean most martyrs don't uh, go into purgatory there <laughs> yeah, especially back in those days when such statements actually carried real weight and validity yeah, yeah. Yeah, you come out with the you come out with the documents of Pius Knight did. Yeah, it's a little bit more strong right there. Uh, and for Leo to say it afterwards too. Yeah, I'm, I mean I'm with you. That's again, it's for private individual devotions. It's not for the whole uh, universal church yet. But people have devotions. The blessed uh, uh, Prasadi, many blessings in the church. Uh, I got Leo the Pond over here, the greatest miracle worker in all time, according to the Saint Pius the Ninth. There's a lot of cool stuff happened in Pius's reign. You know, it was quite so many decades too. Any final thoughts on Garcia, Ecuador, government in general? Um, well, I mean, it almost seems, you mentioned it earlier, it, it probably is good maybe to end on that note. One of the most uh, beautiful things about it, maybe for a personal life, is that he did write a rule. He wrote a little rule for himself you mentioned, I think, that you have it maybe back there in a frame or somewhere, and uh, it, people do well to just look up the rule of Gabriel Garcia Moreno. I'm pretty sure it's available online that you can read it. And yeah, I'm not saying you have to go and do exactly what he did, because his rule is pretty intense. I mean, if you're following that rule, you can easily see how you're going to grow in virtue and grow in sanctity. But um, I think that's a good principle for all of us to follow. Uh, it doesn't mean you can't sort of tweak your rule as you grow yourself. Uh, but I think it is very important to have sort of that consistency and that rule of life. Um, so you know, take a look at his rule. It could inspire you. And then you might take some of those points or might adjust them to meet your own particular circumstances, the duties of your state in life, and, and write yourself a rule and try to persevere with it because there is great virtue just in persevering. 
right? Um, you come up with some good things in your rule of life, you know, you won't waste time. Uh, maybe you don't watch TV or watch modern movies or you seriously limit what you're doing. And, you know, you're going to say your prayers in the morning, prayers in the night, things of this sort, you know, you'll, you'll pray for purity to your three Hail Marys every day. There's a lot of different things that we could put into a rule that I don't think uh, Catholics give sufficient time to. You know, I always say, and, and we are certainly in the midst of a great battle. I mean, the battle each one of us is obviously in is the spiritual battle for our soul. As St. Alphonsus Liguori says, right? That's really the only thing that matters is that you save your soul. Doesn't matter if you're rich or if you're poor, if you're smart, intellectual or not smart. Doesn't matter if you have health or not health, goods in the, I mean, nothing really matters in the end except that you save your soul. That's the one thing that matters. Mm -hmm. um, and yet it's a great battle, right? We know every single day the devil is attacking me. He does not sleep. So he's always after me. He's always trying to drag my soul down. And so we, uh, we as Catholics are not being talked, I think, enough about how we got to engage this battle. And no one is going to win a battle if they're not intentional about it. I mean, you got to have a battle plan. you got to have a battle strategy. I mean, what are you working on? Where are the weaknesses in the enemy? Where are your own weaknesses? How are you shoring up those weaknesses? What are you working on, you know, to build up your forces? I mean, any good general has got to have a, I mean, you know that very often the battle's won way ahead, way ahead of time. It's like who had the best preparation? Who had the best strategy? Who struck first and struck at the right spot? You know, things change like that. I and mean, we've just been studying the Battle of Gettysburg. It's amazing how many little things take place there in Gettysburg. They just kind of lead to a certain outcome, which ultimately leads to what I would say is probably the the, the South losing that war of Northern aggression. Um, but um, they just took out their leader, Jackson. Oh, yeah, that was a little earlier, but that they sure did. And, uh, and so what happens is we don't have that kind of battle plan for our spiritual life. So of course you can get steamrolled. I mean, we're already dealing with principalities and powers, right? It, it's 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 they've already got sort of this advantage. Not obviously they don't because we have ninja, right? But if we don't have a plan, I mean, that's really the the bottom line is every single person have a plan. And I mean, you know, if you have a good friend who you can talk to about spiritual things, good friends should be able to say, hey, like, what's your plan? Like, what are you working on right now? What what what's the vice you're working on? What's the virtue you're going on? What how are you fighting this battle right now? And I would dare say that if you asked almost any Catholic that question, they kind of look at it like, huh? It's the deer in the headlights. Like, what plan? What are you talking about? So we're just kind of like rolling along through life, thinking things are going to happen. I don't know how, but, but it doesn't happen that way. We've got to be intentional. We've got to be specific. We've got to have a plan. We've got to be working on it day to day. It is a battle. And so that's one thing that I think all of us can really learn from Gabriel Garcia Moreno is to have a rule of life. You know, write it up for yourself, carry it in your pocket, look at it, read it, and follow it. And his rule is not, I would just, I, I wouldn't say is, it's not something that's going to be impossible. I mean, I mean, the first one, every morning when saying my prayers, I will ask specifically for the virtue of humility. Or every day I would hear mass, say the rosary and read besides the chapter of the imitation, this rule and other instructions. I mean, it praying while kneeling or standing, kissing the ground, you know, nothing, nothing that's going to make you go, you know what? I'm going to look like a really weirdo if I go out and do this. Not this. He's not he's not asking people to go up and climb a cathedral and yell, you know, something on top of a post or anything like that. It's just little things, which goes back to make the little better. And by the time you get to the big stuff, it comes a little bit at ease. But that's a great thing you brought up about the word. Sun Tzu's are a word. You know the enemy and know yourself, you got a chance of winning. If you don't know the enemy and don't know yourself, you got no chance. That's right. But David, I appreciate your time, man. This uh Again, this is a topic I've been uh, loving to cover, and I'm glad you were able to pull this off. And uh, yes, I'll put the links to everything you brought up your uh, St. Vincent's 
group with your brother. I, I knew that was it, but I didn't want to say something like, ah, is that your brother? No, it's not. I thought it was. And uh, make sure uh, you tell me when we have a, a pilgrimage and we will promote the, uh, you know what, out of it. And I will be glad to go because I would love to go to Quito one day. But God I appreciate work. your time and thank you very much. All right. God bless you, Steve. It's been Do good. Well.